G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast uh, coming to you. I'm coming to you from the Connolly Studios, the hardly palatial Connolly Studios. And with me is my Footyology co-host, Mark Fine, who is pushing the buttons down at Southern FM in Brighton. And they are palatial recording studios. Very big hello to all our Southern FM listeners and uh, I say very good morning to him. How are you, Fanny? I'm well. Long time no see in person, but I'm glad that we are able to at least see each other via Zoom and, of course, produce a podcast every Monday morning. It's it's anchoring. I'll tell you what, I've done that many Zoom uh, teleconferences, meetings, video podcasts or whatever. I'm beginning to think everyone lives inside a little square box i mean thank heavens for the uh the world of modern technology but um it is a bizarre state of affairs as we head into in fact i was just trying to work out is this week five or week six of lockdown i'm definitely starting to lose all sense of time oh weeks i i can't keep a handle on days of the week so you're asking the wrong person mate Yes, well, today is, uh, well, as we record this, of course, it is Monday morning. Uh, it is the 27th of April. Um, we've just had, uh, well, you know, we should have just had what uh, is normally the biggest home and away clash on the AFL calendar, of course, uh, Essendon Collingwood Anzac Day. And we didn't have it. And, uh, yeah, we saw the uh, lone bugler there standing out in the middle of the MCG doing the last post, which was a, a nice touch. And, of course, we saw inevitably replays of some of the great Anzac Day games, uh, 95, the first one, and 2009 and 2012. I, in fact, I had my match report for the 2009 game reprinted in the age during the week, just like the old times. Um, That's but, nice. You know, ah, oh, well, you know, I felt like sending him an invoice, <laughs> but uh, no, no, I think I surrendered all intellectual uh, property rights to the age when I was uh, going with them. But uh, yeah, interesting times, plenty to discuss. Uh, before we do that, Finey, uh, how about uh, giving a bit of a shout out to our wonderful sponsors? The burgers still coming, and they're the best burgers you can get in Australia. They really are. They've been a top. All the best burger lists for years. They're in their 81st year. Can you imagine that? 81 years. And that takes them right back to 1939, of course, a, a very relevant year when you consider it was Anzac weekend and it was st- the start of the Second World War. But they've seen the Second World War. They've seen, obviously, other campaigns by our Defence Force. And now they've seen COVID-19. But all the while, Andrews Hamburgers at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, make magnificent hamburgers, remain open, and most importantly, those, well, you do it better. Tell us about the buns. 
Oh, the buns, they are they are uh, soft and giving and, and yet pleasingly firm. And there's nothing worse than a, a bun that falls apart under the weight of the burger's ingredients. And these don't. They stand the test. They stand the pressure test. They stand the eating test. And they are beautiful, beautiful buns. And that is not all. There is a beautiful tender meat patty. There is the uh, addition of vegetable ingredients, all dripping with freshness. You can actually see the droplets of water, just just enough, not to make it too wet, but just just beading, coming off beading. as they are beading as they are added to the burger. And we're talking about the tomatoes, the lettuce, and then there's the the variety of toppings, that additional toppings you can get. Look, this is it's not just a burger, finally. This is a work of art. At Andrews Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. I'll tell you what, though, there's this weird thing with me. I don't know if it's some sort of Pavlovian response or whatever, but every time I go to Andrews Hamburgers and bite into one of their delectable uh, hamburgers, I can't help but think, you know what? I think it's time I renovated my house. And if you do, you go straight to West Point Properties, Nick Spartel's inner city rebuilds and builds and... Look, the footy season's not far away, but I'm a little bit envious of two of our club captains, Pendlebury and Heppel, because they both currently are domiciled in magnificent West Point properties built by Nick Spartel. So staying at home for them is an absolute pleasure, and staying at home can be a pleasure for you. With West Point properties, contact Nick Spartel's. Spot on. If you're going to be locked down, there is no finer abode in which you would uh, desire to be locked down. All right, you mentioned uh, the start of the footy season. That's one of a variety of topics we're about to get into. Let's do it now. On Footyology News Feed. All right, well, uh, I wouldn't, I'd be pushing it to say plenty to discuss on the news agenda, uh, but this is one topic about which all football discussion revolves and of course that is the scourge that is COVID-19 um, of course in a logistic sense some uh, important information about uh, when we can expect not a restart but an announcement about a restart just firstly though I saw finally uh, interesting interview with Richmond coach Damien Hardwick yesterday on Offsiders the ABC uh, Sunday morning sports program and they interviewed a number of coaches. There was uh, Dimmer and there was Craig Bellamy and there was Ange Postacoglu and Lisa Alexander. So it was a, uh, a storied lineup of coaching talent from various codes. But uh, Dimmer said, and I'm not trying to nail him for this, but he talked about um, the desire for certainty in, in planning about the restart of a season. And he was basically giving a pat on the back to the NRL uh, for having given a planned resumption date and said it was really difficult for the AFL because, quote, we haven't got the carrot. And as soon as you set a date, it makes things easier. Now, uh, again, I stress not really having a go at him, but it was just interesting to me because my feeling about the way the NRL has conducted themselves in fact, I said this on uh, the project the other night when they asked me, finally, um, didn't get on, but I said it. Um, I think the NRL what were... Uh, oh, well, they, they rang me up to... Uh, I, I did a, one of these things. Uh, actually, it was FaceTime about um, the restart and the NRL and, 
and the AFL, and I gave them, oh, you know, five minutes of my best material fighting, and it got boiled down into one pithy 10-second quote, which said very little. <laughs> but um, we, we were talking about the restart. I, I just think the NRL has been, well, was pretty irresponsible to getting ahead of the authorities and set a resumption date. And um, Peter Vlandes has been very sort of confrontational about the whole thing. So, uh, you know, I, I think, and again, for the third time, not having a go at Dimmer, but you can't expect the AFL to be announcing a resumption date when the state premier hasn't announced sort of where we're at. And I'm not having a go at him either, as some people are. Geez, there's so much wisdom after the event with this stuff. You know, people are now saying, oh, Victoria's gone too hard. You know, Sam Newman doing his golf thing, protesting on the steps of Parliament House. But, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, it would be great to have some certainty in a resumption date. But what is the point of nominating a date if it hasn't been approved or, you know, ticked off by the both the health authorities and the government? Yeah, you're spot on. There's... People have to understand priorities here, and the priority for the state government and for federal government fall in these in, in the order of the economy, and that means getting small businesses and businesses open again, and education, both schools and tertiary education. And the Prime Minister has made that clear, that they are the important stepping stones back to normality. Now, how a football competition or any sporty competition steps in uh, line with those decisions and when those uh, restrictions are eased will be the decision of the people who run those competitions. But basically, until we get a at least a return to schools in all states, I know some states are back, maybe Victoria, the standout there, and all businesses open again with social distancing, the AFL can't consider themselves to be in a position to name a starting date because, of course, they are also reliant on the fact that social distancing in a game of football will be overlooked. And they'll try and counter that with their hubs and their fastidious medical procedures. No crowds, of course. But until we get a clear indication when businesses all reopen, I don't think the AFL could possibly name a resumption date. No, 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 that's that's dead right. And I mean, you know, there's so much we don't know about the the course this virus takes. So even the thing about the education, I mean, that's a very vexed topic. And, and, you know, people saying, oh, kids don't transmit the disease. Well, there's plenty of kids have died of it overseas and uh you know we're still i mean even the finest doctors and scientists are still getting their heads around the the you know the the dangers involved and we i mean we're like impatient little kids aren't we we said at the outset you know better to overreact and and knock it on the head than you know leave open the possibility of a uh you know a return and a spike in infections again and that's what's happened in a couple of asian countries and yet when we the slightest hint of someone, you know, getting ready to resume something before we do, and it's sort of like, what are we doing that? You know, and I guess that was to be expected. So, look, to I mean, as far as logistics go, we had <laughs> this is a funny one. We had the announcement last week from the AFL that the announcement 
about the resumption date had been postponed. So this is what we're reduced to. We now write sort of, I'm not saying they shouldn't, but this, we now write news stories about uh, an announcement about a date being postponed. So the announcement was that the announcement had been postponed, not surprisingly, until after that May 11, or uh, yeah, May 11 deadline that Dan Andrews talked about. And that, that was always going to be where things until that moment, things were always going to stay as they are now. So absolutely pointless, the AFL giving a resumption date without that hurdle being passed first. Okay. Uh, what else did he say? Gil McLaughlin said the other day, the model for the restart hasn't been finalised. All options um, with governments across the country are being discussed. And there have been, despite torrents of speculation in the media about things like the soft cap on football departments, pathway structures and the draft, list sizes, um, none of that has been decided. So we're basically now where we were four or five weeks ago, and that's okay. I mean, frankly, to get back to your fundamental point, that's where we should be if we're going to do this thing properly. So, I mean, the worst thing that could happen is we restart perhaps too hastily and then there's a sudden spike in, in cases and we have to call the whole thing off again. Not just, I mean, for, not, we, not just for football, Rowan. I mean, that would be catastrophic for the country. It would be catastrophic anywhere in the world where that would happen. Just to start the economy and then to stop it again would be fiscally a disaster. But also, just think of the morale of people with businesses and students going to school, all of us starting to reclaim lost territory in our lives and then having to give it all back again. A lot of people would throw their hands up in despair. A lot of businesses would never reopen for a third time. So it has to be the one and only resumption of normality. And that must be guaranteed. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. The the I mentioned a range of things there, like the soft cap, the pathways, the list sizes. The one thing, the phrase he did use as well as, as a topic that hadn't been decided was, quote, the amount of games in future seasons. Now, that, that got my devious little mind ticking over time. I thought, well, why has he referred to that? Um, and the only thing I could think of, and the more I think about this, the more I think this is feasible, that if, you know, you and I have both been big on, if we pass a certain point and there's no restart, you know, we're both more to the view that you're better off, you know, not having one. And we both know that that's not going to be the case because they're desperate for the broadcasting revenue. But if you weren't to have one, think of the leeway that would give you to have a 2021 season that not only accommodated a lot more games and satisfied those broadcasting requirements to an extent, but also gave us the by far the closest thing we've seen to a fair and equitable fixture. And I'm talking about, you know, like it doesn't have to be, what is it, 34 rounds if everyone played each other twice. But you could probably you could probably have, uh, I don't know, 26, 27, 28. And you could do that if you weren't to having a season this year and you could organise an earlier start. I don't mind that idea. I'd, I'd absolutely dislike it and would strongly counsel against it. Look, in a 22-game season, after about 14, 
plus games. There are so many teams that are not in the running anymore. Imagine, you know, and there's five or six teams, maybe four, five, six teams, supporters of those teams in a 28-game season after 13, 14 games knowing your goose is cooked. Gee, there'd be a lot of irrelevant football. This is... Oh, that's true, yeah. This is, I've got to say, no one will ever bring this one up, I don't think. I would rather, and I would be more than comfortable, I'd be far more comfortable having two seasons next year in front of crowds than one, so two 17-game seasons. So it's fair. Everybody plays each other once, and we do it twice. We start in beginning of February. Maybe we play more than once a week, and we get two full seasons in. And then, then you have your two, you know, you have your Premier from 2021, which will be last year's Premier if you want to be consecutive. And then, but you have two Premiers. Maybe there's a, 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 an opportunity for a draft, therefore, in between the two seasons and some trading. But that way you have two fair seasons. I like 17 game seasons, I think that's the best way to go. And I would far prefer two 17 game seasons in. 2021 in front of crowds than a 2020 season played in front of no crowds. I'll tell you what, it'd be if you did that, you'd hate to do your knee in round one. You'd miss two years. <laughs> I, no, I actually don't mind that suggestion at all. I mean, the obvious logistic complication, the first season, you'd have to call that the 2020 Premiership regardless of the fact it was played in yeah, that's 2021. Right. But I think you and I are on the same wavelength here that the the crowd thing is a, a big deal for us and particularly the horrifying prospect of a grand final played in front of no crowds. To me, that just veers way too uncomfortably closely to a concept of a reality TV show, you know. And there are some people that would say we're, we're sort of tipping in that direction all the time anyway, but... That to me, you know, like if you if you are actually at a point where you're playing an entire season, including a grand final, in front of zero crowds, that's a tipping point for me. I mean, okay, here's one to you, right, right off the top of your head. What is the point, either uh, you know, in terms of the calendar, but also the look of the competition? What is the line uh, at which you go from saying, okay, I can cop this. We've had to change things. Fair enough, I get it, but it's still. I still want this to happen this season. What's the tipping point for you? How how much can you tolerate before you go, no, I'd rather we didn't have a season? Yeah, a full season without fans. We've just completely lost perspective. If we play the, the season, home and away, then finals and a grand final in front of uh, no fans, empty houses. Because, look, we know only too well the tail wags the dog here, that the TV broadcasters have, because of the money they pay, wield huge amounts of influence. So I was I was staggered with Channel 9's attitude to the NRL wagging their fingers at them and probably precipitating or certainly hastening the resignation of Todd Greenberg. You see, the reality is they pay their money and that's their choice. From that point on, they should not have any more rights than what they have negotiated, which Channel 9 
wanted in terms of the NRL. They were asking for things that they failed to negotiate for. Well, boo-hoo to you. And in terms of AFL football, there is this desperate need, obviously, for revenue and also commitment to produce a product for the broadcasters. Okay, it brings money into the game. But this is a game... How many times does the AFL stress, you know, it's, it's, it's about the fans, it's uh, about become a member, you know, become a tangible contributor to your club. And we know that really football, any sport, is at the highest level lifted to greater heights with great crowds. It's interesting, we heard Matt Ryan, the Brighton goalkeeper playing in the EPL, talking about resumption of the EPL without crowds. And he said it'll be a huge challenge. And he was very honest about it. And he said, I just don't know whether all the players in this competition, knowing their personalities and knowing how ego-driven so many of us are, will be able to uh, emulate what we did in front of packed houses. Because when we do it at training in front of nobody, it's never anywhere near as good. So it was a fairly frank assessment. I think it's a really good point, and I think perhaps people have underestimated how big a factor that could be. I'll say this, though, on a more positive note. Um, so a couple of things. So Victoria's Chief Health Officer uh, Brett Sutton said the other day there was a possibility we could see a June resumption. So when he says that, I think, okay, well, that that you know that's not just kite flying. This guy clearly, you know, uh, has more credentials to make a comment like that than just about anyone who has already. Look, I did hear that quote. I I want to qualify that quote. It was a question asked of him by a a sports journalist, I believe. And he he said that within the, sort of what we were discussing previously, within the scope of what he sees as the return, gradual return or easing of restrictions, football could possibly resume under those under those um, conditions but there would be no he's, he's not saying that there are going to be specific conditions that say that AFL football or any other football can return it's just yeah, within yeah. parameters of the easing of restrictions it may be able to return yeah no no it's a fair point but after I heard that I, I thought I, I sort of sat down and did a sort of mathematical exercise with the the games and the weeks and whatever, just to see how it looked. And it's actually more encouraging than I first thought that, you know, I, look, I still think it's unlikely we'd start before the start of July. But even then, I mean, here's an example. If we started uh, in mid-June, I think mid, mid-June mid would be the absolute earliest we could start when you bear in mind the May the 11th, which is a critical date on which Victoria addresses you know, whether we can ease up a step. So if on May 11th the Victorian government says, okay, we, we, we can go ahead, um, the AFL has talked about a four-week preparation. Um, maybe you could whittle that down to three. But on the, on the basis of uh, a four-week preparation aiming for a mid-June restart, if they were playing one game per week, one game per club per week, the home and away season would finish on what was scheduled to be grand final day, so the last Saturday in September. You have four weeks of finals and whatever, that takes you up to the end of October. 
So that's reasonable. I can live with that. But if you also bear in mind, you know, what they were saying about double headers and, and things like that, it isn't beyond the realms that you could whittle that four-week preparation down to three weeks. And if you played 16 rounds, which is what's remaining, over 13 weeks, so that's not too much of a cram, the home and away season would finish at the end of August, which is when it's supposed to end. And then you could have four weeks of finals and the whole thing would still wrap up come the end of September. Now, I, I thought I must have got something wrong doing that because surely we've, you know, we've missed so much. Surely we couldn't. But when you take into account the six rounds where we've reduced already before we start, it actually is feasible yeah, that the- we could start in mid-June and finish when we're supposed to. But the problem with that, Rowan, is if we speed up the season or reduce it, first of all, as it will be reduced, and then speed it up with playing 16 games in 13 weeks and bring forward everything so, in fact, we finish when we normally were going to finish, that makes it almost impossible that we'll see crowds this season. We're not going to see crowds of people allowed to gather in September. I just don't think that's possible. I think, you know, we need the extra time to have a grand final in front of a crowd. So it's a devil in the deep blue So have, hang on, well, just well, I want to pick you up on that, not pick you up, but have you heard any reference at all from anyone to a, da- to a potential date where, uh, you know, crowds, large yeah. gatherings of crowds might be all right? Okay, I heard Greg Hunt, the... Federal Health Minister speaking yesterday and yep. tried to sell the uh, uh, tracking on the app. Yep. Are you subscribing? Are you going to join up? Um, well, I haven't yet, but look, I'm, I don't get as riled about the, you know, sort of Civil privacy. liberties. Yeah, well, you know, mate, I've been, I've, like a lot of people, I've, I've committed so many, so much private information to the uh, the vast resources of the internet that I figure there's not a lot they don't already know about me. So I, I'm not, personally I'm not that fussed about it. Well, I, I didn't like Greg Hunt's assurances yesterday actually when I listened to him. He made it very clear that under no circumstances, like legally it will be impossible to use any evidence gathered from this tracking in a court of law. The police right. will have no access to it. He made assurances of that. There'll be no storage of this information. And the government, both federal and state local governments, have absolutely no access to it. Uh, The decoding is such that it basically disappears after an hour or so. It won't exist. And he gave... This this document will self-destruct in three seconds. That sort of thing. And that, to me, absolutely missed the point. I don't care about the courts. I don't care about the police or the government. He mentioned nothing about my wife. And that, of course, is where tracking becomes vitally important for me. So until Greg Hunt can give me assurances that my wife won't have access to it, I can't join up. Back- I actually thought you were being serious there for a second. I uh, am. I am being uh, quite serious. I, sh- I should have known. I should- but, no, but what but have Greg you heard Hunt- about the crowd well, Greg- stuff? Absolutely. Greg Hunt was saying yesterday that the um, government is committed to getting the economy back and moving, and he believes that he, he also was pumping his chest saying, you know, the modelling that I did a month ago said that at the end of April we'll be able to start easing restrictions. I was correct, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you're a genius, Greg. Fantastic. 
but he's modelling also and in line with best advice from around the globe and medical experts here in Australia says that for no in no foreseeable in not in the foreseeable future will crowds be able to gather and he talked about pubs clubs and large gatherings for sporting events and even religious events etc and it's not on the horizon and his in his horizon that he was talking about certainly included other events later this year so extrapolating what he said there's going to be no gathering of crowds in 2020 and a conservative okay. and conservative governments have said that there'll be no gathering of crowds in any great numbers until there's a vaccine now that would be yeah. calamitous that could be a couple of years but certainly nothing on the horizon this year okay all right no that's interesting just by the by one thing that is i think clearly going to be an issue is if and when the what restrictions we have at the moment are relaxed uh, a people getting dangerously complacent about the whole thing but b like, I don't know about you, but look, I've hardly, like, literally the last couple of weeks, hardly left the house. But the few times I have, I've noticed more people out and about. You know, I drove past a couple of parks the other day and, and I could count, you know, 30 people there. Um, and I'm just noticing more and more people out in groups bigger than two, you know, and... and yeah, that's... I, that's I, a- I can, that's against the law unless they're in the same household. I've got to say, we take the dog to the park every day, and there are a lot of people out there, but if you look carefully, it still is a, a large group of people observing social distancing, mainly people in pairs, sometimes threes, if there's obviously family members or maybe a household together with dogs. Nobody gets too close to each other. It's actually quite a normal scene. I, I in terms of going to the park, uh, as long as there's not large gatherings there for a party or a picnic or whatever, well, you don't get too close to anybody anyhow, regardless of whether there's COVID-19 or not. So things look quite normal on the street. You see people walking up and down the street, going into the supermarket, and you think, well, hang on, this looks very normal. But I think it still sees people cognizant of social distancing, which, to be honest... I've always been a fan of. I don't like getting close to people. I don't think... I, I, I think I social distance it in normal times. Now, one thing that was discussed yesterday by Greg Hunt and by others is when does Australia return to allowing businesses with one-on-one contact to resume? And a very interesting point was brought up by a medical expert on the ABC, and he said, look, Hairdressers have stayed open and there's been no spread of the virus through any hairdressing. There's no tracking of any COVID-19 spread through hairdressers. And they have been doing their business without observing social distancing. You can't cut hair from one and a half metres away. The Taiwan model, which a lot of people are pointing to, they never close down those businesses. So remedial massage, tattoo parlours... Uh, a range of services which involve sort of a hands-on, one-on-one. The advocacy on that is a return pretty soon. Now, if that's the case, then I think football can return pretty soon. Okay, so more importantly, though, does this mean I can go and get a haircut? Because I think... They're, they've been open. 
Well, I'm I'm desperate for one. All these people cutting their own hair and stuff. I am that desperate for a haircut. I've cut my um, own, own hair for two years. Yeah, well, it's not a long job, let's be honest. No. I've still got a few locks to deal with. So do um, or, or where are they exactly? I cut them off. In I a locket? Yeah, okay. <laughs> In a locket, um, yeah. <laughs> or, or a merkin. I'm saving it for DNA purposes. Uh, all right, that's enough for Newsfeed. Uh, I think uh, in the same vein, perhaps, we ended Newsfeed. Let's now talk about matters life. Life hacks. Building a better world. All right, uh, where are we going to start with this segment today? Well, I'm revisiting uh, one thing at least, Finey, uh, and I'll, I'll do that straight away. I mentioned, I think, a couple of weeks ago, the test, the documentation of Australia's cricket journey from the moment Justin Langer was appointed coach after Sandpaper Gate through to the end of the recent Ashes series. And um, eight episodes on Amazon Prime and uh you, if you need to know this, you, you don't need to pay to watch it because you, everyone is entitled to a 30-day free trial of Amazon Prime. So I wonder how many people watched the test on that basis and didn't re-sign. I'm going to be another one. But um, it, it is terrific. Uh, and, you know, we've talked a lot about sports talk days lately and there's been some rippers. But this is, in a cricket sense, I don't think I've seen another cricket uh, one like this and that's what makes it so special. And, yeah, yes, it's done with the full acquiescence of the team and everything, but there's some really confronting stuff in it. And I finally got around to watching the last episode uh, a couple of nights ago, and it's been difficult, actually, because I've had internet issues. Like, with our, you know, it's just been shocking, the loading speeds and stuff, and our speed's normally not bad. So a lot of people are struggling with that too. But um, it relaxed enough for me to be able to watch it. Jeez, last, and I knew the last episode would be good because obviously it talks about the Headingley disaster and then the winning securing of the Ashes at Old Trafford, the next test. But it is so good, particularly the dressing room stuff, the fly on the wall stuff. And in the final episode, particularly confronting um, footage of, so you see the Headingley disaster and you, you even just watching in the rooms immediately after how shattered they are. And Nathan Lyon particularly, of course, famously fumbled that run out with the Australia still one run to the good. Um, and he is, you know, there's some footage of him sort of sitting in the bathroom off to one side, just sobbing, you know, with his head in a towel. He was just so devastated at, at the thought of, you know, I'm, I'm the bloke who lost the test for us. And, of course, he wasn't. It was lost over a succession of things. Um, but really confronting. But even more confronting, perhaps, was – and Justin Langer – and look, interesting question about whether he should or shouldn't have done this. But he was sort of sleepless the night after it happened. And um, he just had this thing, oh, we've got to do this. So he called a team meeting. And the whole team assembled and had to sit there and watch the whole debacle of that last wicket partnership again. And they went through it and they talked about Tim Payne not bringing the field up uh, for the last ball to Stokes so they could keep Leach on strike. And uh, that was confronting for him. And he was you could see him practically tearing up at one point where he sort of realises himself that 
his captaincy in that moment was deficient. And they get to the run out again. You see Lyon sort of bury his head in his hands. And, um, gee, it was, you know, it was so raw and uncomfortable to watch. But um, I had a couple of people on Twitter say to me, you know, was that the right thing to do? And, and perhaps modern age sort of um, thinking would be, yeah, it's a bit sort of heavy-handed. But in retrospect, I, I, I think it probably was the right thing to do. They really, it enabled them to really sort of confront the demons rather than letting them fester and emerge to the surface again in a similar situation. So, yeah, look, it's a wonderful series. And if you haven't seen it and you have any interest in cricket whatsoever, make sure you, you watch it. It's terrific. I'll tell you what, if Tim Payne was a bit emotional about not bringing the field up, he would have been a blubbering mess when they replayed the his decision to Appeal. go to the third umpire for that ridiculous down leg side LB or whatever it was, and then not yeah, no, that not was, have the facility for the last one. Yeah, that was part of it. Oh, but I tell you what, no one comes out of this more impressively than Tim Payne. He is, yeah, a, great. He is a really, really impressive guy. Yeah, yeah. All right, you're up. Okay, I tip this. Now, when they when we spoke about all world sport really st- grinding to a stop and no live sport on TV, we didn't factor in racing here in Australia that's carried on and done so quite successfully. But I said, darts can be played because you don't need to be in the same room to play darts and what happens on the board is not dependent on what your opponent does. It's not like a game of billiards or it's not like uh, any other sport really or most sports where you need to competitors need to compete against each other. No. In darts, you just need two dartboards. And we now have live darts every day from England with the PDC home dart competition and some of the best players in the world in groups of four. They play every day, three-hour TV. It's on very early in the morning on um, one of the Fox Sports channels, but it's replayed later on in the day. And it's interesting because they set up dartboards in their own house and they do their own scoring, but there's a commentator, and this is all on one screen, so you see the two dartboards. You don't see the person throwing. You see the two dartboards, you see where the darts land, and then there's a little window with the commentator in between. He does a bit of commentary, some interviewing. The scores are up on the screen as they normally are. Um, Players are on an honour system to give the right scores, but they do, and anything that's close, they sort of show where the dart went in and don't take the dart out without making it quite clear that it's gone in where they suggested. And it's been very competitive and quite watchable. So well done, darts. Oh, nice. When you mentioned the commentator, I immediately, for some reason, thought of whispering Ted Lowe. But then darts commentators don't whisper, do they? They're pretty throaty in there. Oh, yeah. The, Although the, they do that in front of crowds, don't they? It'd be hard for them to be as animated, I would have thought. Well, the commentator, the, the person that reads out the scores is not the commentator. Um, so... Uh, the most famous commentator is the late Sid Waddell, a big uh, Geordie from obviously from Newcastle. And you know what? Can I do mine second? Because uh, it follows on what? from what I'll, I'll, I'll go next with my second one. If oh I yeah, can. hang on. No, I just wanted to say. I just yeah. wanted to say quickly. Surely there is a darts competition in England called the Old Dart. There should be, shouldn't there? All all yes. the big competitions are quite. Um, I think 
sort of scurrilously named after all the other sports as big competitions. So there's the Grand Slam of Darts, Darts Masters, Darts World Match Play, Darts Champions League, Darts Premier League. Not exactly Their original. Darts X? Not, not exa- no, not exactly original. But the old Dart would be a great name for the quite uh, prestigious UK Open, for example. All right, so you want to do your second one following on? Correct. I mentioned. Okay, Sid- I'm enforcing the follow on. Good. Yeah, good call. Uh, I mentioned Sid Waddell. In the early 70s, he produced a TV show like no other, hosted by Fred Truman. It ran for four years, and you can go on YouTube and watch episodes of it. And I suggest if anybody wants to watch an episode, and I suggest you do, because you won't believe what you're about to see. If you type in Indoor League TV, about the fourth or fifth choice that comes up is Champions Edition. It goes for 26 minutes. Indoor League was a television program that showcased England's finest exponents at pub games. Yes, there was darts, both female and male. That's okay. There's table soccer. I guess that's interesting in a way. And then there are some things that just could only happen in pubs. Table skittles, a strange version of, I don't know what it is, half pinball, half snooker, where you hit a ball. It, I can't describe it. And these are whole episodes, but again, you're better off just watching the end of season champions edition. Haypenny push, where grown men are <laughs> flicking haypennies at each other's haypennies. Uh, a very rudimentary form of skittles. A arm arm wrestling gets a gets a run. I've probably forgotten a couple. They play for sort of a knockout comp, and at the end of the year, the big hundred pound prize. And it's just and Freddie Truman's hilarious in it. Now we return to our champion game. Here we have the lads from Leeds taking on the upstarts from London. It's table football at its finest. <laughs> okay. All right, I'll, uh, I'll dig it out. Um, all right, my second one, and I'll, I'll follow on from my... Uh, we've talked a lot about um, view, potential viewing through streaming services. As, I mean, what else are you going to do? But um, I, I've, got, I've been a bit slack on it, to be honest. I've... You know, I've started watching another one on Amazon Prime about Manchester City, um, but I've only just, literally just started that. But I uh, I shouldn't say stumbled onto this because this thing is huge and I, I didn't realise how huge it was until I naively tweeted something asking whether it was worth giving a go. Uh, can I tell you, Fanny, uh, I've now watched the second season has just gone up on Netflix, but I'm a bit late to the party. I yesterday watched the whole first season of Afterlife, Ricky Gervais's show. Have you heard about that? No, I haven't watched it. No. Well, I'm not huge on Ricky Gervais. I mean, I don't I dislike him. him. Yeah, I like him a lot. Yeah, well, uh, well, you have to watch this, mate. Okay. Like seriously, this is one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, okay, Afterlife, and I'm sure a whole lot of people right now are hearing this and go, "Yes, yes." That's certainly the reaction I got on Twitter. You should check out the reaction to, to my Twitter question, Bonnie. In fact, after I finished watching it, I tweeted very enthusiastically about it. That tweet has now been 
liked over a thousand times, including uh, by Ricky Gervais himself. <laughs> so wow, that how was, was that? Oh, I was quite chuffed by that, I've got to say. But it is so good. It, seriously, it's about a guy who has lost his wife through cancer and the whole series, the only moments you see her are in a, a video that she has taped before she dies as sort of a instruction manual to him about what he, how he should handle himself. And that doesn't sound overly original, does it? But it's not mawkish. It's funny and, and the way she does it. But that's not the centrepiece of the show. It's about how he goes about picking up the pieces of his life. And to be honest, for a, a fair while, he doesn't. He wants to kill himself. And it is dark and dark and depressing and confronting and real. But it is also, at the same time, incredibly funny. You know, they're just, it's typical Ricky Gervais type jokes, but, you know, it, it is funny. And I've never, ever, ever watched anything which had me laughing and weeping simultaneously at the same time. And I, I, that's how I felt. I'd, I'd be laughing, you know, in one moment I'd be howling my eyes out and five seconds later laughing at that the black humour. But it's so real. The characters are so well-formed. Uh, he works for a local newspaper and there's a few oddball characters. But, uh, you know, there, for instance, he goes and visits his wife, his wife's grave and he meets uh, an elderly woman who's grieving her husband and is there at the same time, same day. And they strike up a friendship and, and they it's a beautiful relationship, you know, and ditto a number of other relationships on the show. And uh, it, is, it affected me so deeply. And, and people said, well, have the tissues ready. Well, I needed a, a Kleenex factory because I was just howling, but not just in a relentlessly sad way. It, it's so uplifting as well. It really sort of, I guess, affirms your fundamental faith in human nature. These are good people. They're good, warm, warm-hearted people and the characters are beautifully drawn and he gives an amazing sensitive performance as his character tony uh and i've just started watching season two which is up there but i'm telling you funny it is seriously one of the best things i've ever watched and i didn't know ricky gervais had that bigger range as an actor or a writer or a director it is brilliant stuff absolutely brilliant and i'm so glad i watched it. it's one of the best things i've ever seen afterlife High praise indeed. Wow. Okay. Well done. All right. I want to finish on a pretty sombre note, and I'm sure I speak on behalf of both of us, but what happened last week on the Eastern Freeway was beyond comprehension and the loss of life for four Victorian police officers hits home for all of us. I'm sure we can all appreciate the job that the police do on our roads, you know, the danger involved there is is obvious and I don't think that there's a Victorian, a decent-hearted Victorian who wasn't absolutely horrified when first they heard about what happened and then the callous way in which the accused driving the Porsche behaved, you know, that, that, that a sense of, you know, not rendering assistance and... Anyhow, the whole thing is horrifying and it'll play itself out in court, but uh, I, I'm sure we both speak as one voice here in 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 standing alongside our brothers and sisters in blue. Yeah, no, here, here, couldn't agree more. And, um, yeah, it was hard to 
get your head around the fact that it happened, to be honest, and then hard to get your head around how any human being can be that, as you say, callous. I mean, that, yeah, you, you don't want to prejudge someone before these matters are heard in court, but boy, that guy hasn't uh, created a great um, character reference for himself with uh, some of his alleged behaviour after the horrible crash. I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, that guy's like a caricature, really. I mean, it's just, yeah, that's... No, but I echo everything you say. I mean, these are the people we entrust to keep us safe and keep things ticking over, and they do it brilliantly. And, um, you know, they all four officers sadly lost, you know, seem like um, really, you know, wonderful members of the community. And it's, uh, it's indescribably sad and... Um, our our hearts go out to them, their, their families, and anyone uh, who who knew them. Um, it's just a, a shocking a shocking thing, and um, yeah, a, a tragedy. Really, is a tragedy in the true sense of the word. All right, uh, final one from me, just to wrap it up, and uh, a brief one. But uh, we do talk about social media and Twitter, particularly on this show a lot. Well, I do because I spend half my life on it. But uh, I, I really do think social media in a lot of ways has come into its own during the COVID-19 uh, disaster for a number of reasons. But I, I found a, another one again the other night, finally, when my computer and both my computer and the internet connection started playing up hideously. And uh, I thought, what am I going to do here? And I was just desperate. So I put out a bit of an APB on Twitter and I was absolutely inundated with genuine offers of help and advice and uh, so much advice. I now feel like I'm a qualified computer technician. But um, uh, one guy in particular, and I should have made a note of his name uh, to thank him, but he basically stayed online helping me, talking me through some attempts at solutions for a good hour. And um, in the end, uh, I, I managed to uh, get the thing running a lot better. I, I you know, cleaned out the hard drive and did a couple of things to speed up the connection. And, uh, you know, it was fantastic. But that, that many offers of help, uh, genuine offers of help, I was, I was quite moved by that. So thank you. And also, again, last night, I mentioned Afterlife before, that uh, I put out a thing saying, look, I'm thinking of watching this quick straw poll. What do you reckon? Well, the answers to that straw pile are still flooding in. So, uh, you know, if you want sort of a uh, uh, take a, a temperature as as uh, regards, you know, the worth of a show or anything really, just put it out on Twitter and you will have no shortage of answers. In fact, that's how they should do things like the radio ratings, finally, rather than get people filling books in this sort of antiquated way of dealing with that. Uh, just put it out on Twitter because uh, people will answer answer in droves and answer very promptly. So a wonderful uh, poll-taking service there supplied by Twitter, and I'm very grateful for people's assistance of me the other evening. Good okay, to, I'm done. Are you done? I am. Good to hear the positives outweighing the negatives, as they really do in actual in actuality for social media. I'm done. All right. I've, okay, I think it's time we uh, took... A trip back in time. Let's do it. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. 
All right, vinyl and video time. Uh, love this segment, and so do the punters, Finey. Great feedback on this one. And uh, last week was pretty contemporary. We did uh, 2011. Uh, I've decided to wind back a little bit further. I must admit, I do love the 1990s, Finey, but there's still a few years in the 90s we haven't uh, done in detail. So I'm picking one of them, and I've gone back to 1995. Do you remember it fondly? Oh, it's yeah. Look, I remember the year, the year we turned thirty. But um, I, I, just looking back at the music, it is so. It is grunge. It is absolutely. It's filled with your sort of uh, love, children. Yeah, true. Look, grunge was probably in its death throes as a sort of popular movement by then, but it did sort of pave the way for a. Uh, some interesting tangents, and one of them I'll refer to in a minute. But big if you're right, you're right. Some of my favourite music came out in 95, and just a quick roll call of some of them. One of my very favourite bands, The Mark of Cain, brought out Ill at Ease. Uh, Foo Fighters had their uh, self-titled debut album, and in fact that was Dave Grohl playing absolutely every instrument on the album. And that is a, still their best record for mine, and that was a ripper. Uh, Faith No More, another favourite band of mine, bought out King for a Day, Fool for a Lifetime. Great album. Alice in Chains, self-titled. Uh, more popularly, we had Oasis, bought out What's the Story, Morning Glory, which was massive. Radiohead, bought out The Benz. And Silverchair, that pack of what were they, 15-year-olds from Lismore, I think, bought out Frog Stomp, their debut, and uh, were discovered. But... Uh, my album, Finey, is one that very few people I'm confident will have heard of, uh, certainly the band. Now, this is a New York band. Uh, I guess the genre would be defined as hardcore. Their name was Orange 9mm. And when I did my top 20 albums countdown on Twitter a couple of weeks back, this album featured very very high because it is a ripper. Now, what does it sound like? If you're into any of the following bands, Helmet, Fagazi, or even Rage Against the Machine, I highly recommend you have a listen to this. It is driving, um, noisy, loud, uh, slightly funky, and this is a good thing for me. It's hardcore, but it's got a real funky uh, rhythm section. Uh, band led by Chucka Mullick, a... Um, sort of rap vocals, quite Zach Della Rocker-ish, and uh, a guitarist, Chris Trainer, who actually ended up playing in Helmet, uh, or had played in Helmet prior to this. Um, and they make the sound. And this album, it is just, from go to woe, it is non-stop, uh, foot to the floor. Um, if you want to have a, a sample of one, there's not much of them on YouTube, but they did do a couple of clips. One of them is called High Speed Changer. If you want to check that out, and if you like that, absolutely, you will love the album because it's all in very similar vein. And like I said, there's few albums where the pace just doesn't ease off one or two tracks. Well, uh, there might be one that's a bit more laid back in this album, but the rest of it is just full-on, hardcore, um, foot-thumping, foot fist-thumping, chest-beating, funky uh, rock, uh, tight as a drum, um, it, it it's, comes together brilliantly. They only did about three albums, these guys, and uh, split up by about 99, I think, so pretty short-lived. 
but this is a fantastic legacy. So the album is called Driver Not Included, and the band out of New York were called Orange 9mm. That is my album of 1995. What's yours? Well done. Well, mine is a, a duo. They are Tom Rowland and Ed Simons, and for anybody who's enjoyed dance music, anybody who's ever been in the boiler room at Big Day Out, where I was fortunate enough to see these this duo perform live. Um, they've got a huge reputation. It's electronic, it's acid house, big beat, combines quite a few different genres. So it's not just sort of dance music, it's songs. But their first ever album, and I speak of the Chemical Brothers, was released in 1995 called Exit Planet Dust. The two hits off the album were Leave Home and Life is Sweet. And... Whilst they hadn't necessarily hit their stride in terms of real strong electronic dance music that would appear later on, um, songs like Africa and Hey Boy, Hey Girl. I don't know whether you're familiar with the Chemical Brothers, but I think... Well, that... I, well I'm just, I've got to ask, was Africa wasn't a cover of Toto, surely? No, no, no. It certainly was not. Uh, they're... A, Fantastic duo and still relevant today, but um, it all started with Exit Planet Dust in 1995. All right. That is a, a genre I probably should check out more of, I have to say. I'm a bit narrow-minded with my musical taste, as you have remarked several times. Uh, certainly not as Catholic as yourself. Um all right, let's talk movies. Uh, big year. Well, most years we do seem to be big years for movies and uh, some big movies that came out in 1995. Uh, Seven, a uh, very chilling uh, thriller. Uh, Braveheart, of course, with Mel Gibson. Babe, a uh, phenomenally successful Australian movie. Uh, Clueless, uh, Dangerous Minds with, uh, what's her name, Michelle Pfeiffer and that Coolio song. Um What's that song again? Gangster's Paradise. That's it. As I walk through the valley of the shadow. Yeah, I always think of Weird Al Yankovic's version. <laughs> what, what's his version? Uh, an Amish, what's his uh, Amish Paradise. Oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I've gone with another phenomenally successful movie, a feel-good movie, and it, it's a ripper. And it, I, I've never met anyone that didn't like this movie. I'm talking about Toy Story. Uh, one of the supreme examples of animation in uh, in cinema and uh, duly acknowledged as such and has been fated many times as one of the best examples of the genre, directed by John Lasseter. Uh, terrific animation. I mean, the animation uh, in the 90s just kept getting better and better and it was a real high point here with that sort of 3D animation that was a central part of it. Uh, the main characters, uh, of course, if you're one of the handful of people on the planet not familiar with it, it's about uh, some toys who are actually live and uh, they're part of the life of a young boy called Andy and uh, it all centres around a sort of competing toys, the old-style cowboy uh, called Woody, uh, voiced excellently by Tom Hanks, and the newfangled... Um, Spaceman, uh, Buzz Lightyear, voiced by Tim the Toolman Taylor or Tim Allen. Um, and uh, they're competing for the affections of Andy and they both 
um, get way weighed, and it's all about their uh, quest to get back with Andy as his family moves house and they risk being lost forever. And there's some great, uh, great characters in it. Um, there's the Mr. Potato Head character played by Don Rickles and uh, Little Bo Peep. I can't remember what her character's name is, to be honest. But it's, it's, a, it's a feel-good movie, but it appeals uh, simultaneously to kids and adults. Um, and it uh, became a colossus. Of course, there were three sequels, I think, and the most recent of them only, I think, even last year. Um, so it's still phenomenally popular 25 years down the track. Everyone loves Toy Story, as, as they should. Great story, great voiceovers, great script, great animation. I mean, I'm not huge on animated movies as a rule, but this is one exception because I think Toy Stories are a lovely film and uh, one I wouldn't hesitate to watch again. Here, here. Yeah, it's great. It certainly spawned, okay, a lot, spawned a lot of merchandise. Uh, with one apology, because um, I thought that Dead Man Walking was a great movie from 1995, the story of Sister Helen Prejean, played by Susan Sarandon, I think, and Sean Penn as um, the young man on death row. But my movie of the year is The Usual Suspects. Ah, yes. It was a bit of a um, sleeper of a movie when it started. Um, had limited release in the United States. It was $6 million budget. They found it hard to get backers. Uh, really a case of chicken and the egg. They had a good script. And they attracted some interested actors, but they couldn't pay them very much. And they couldn't get the funding until the actors said yes. So there was a bit of toing and froing. In the end, the actor that really put his hand up was Kevin Spacey um, and he liked the script so much he sort of encouraged others to be part of the uh, ensemble cast which is very strong Gabriel Byrne plays Keaton um, central character of course Spacey himself plays Verbal Kent and it's told in flashback as Verbal Kent is the only survivor one of two survivors of a massacre on a boat and he is brought in for questioning by Inspector um, Kuyon, played by Chaz Parmentieri. And basically it tells the story of a group of men that are brought together uh, on a sus- suspicion of a crime in a lineup in a New York police station. And they're all professional criminals. And whilst being sort of held in custody, they decide to get together and do a job to embarrass the New York police. And what eventuates is a story surrounding this figure Kaiser Soze. His representative is Mr Kobayashi, uh, played beautifully by Pete Postlethwaite. Uh, There's turns and an unexpected ending. It's a movie that a lot of people saw, probably had to see again to quite tick off the boxes of what happened. It can be a bit confusing, but that's part of a good sort of uh, mystery and, and suspense thriller. I really like it. I think the acting is in it's great. I think the script is very clever. Not everybody loves it. It's not universally critically acclaimed, but it won a lot of awards, and Kevin Spacey won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role in the movie. So it certainly hit the heights at some points, and I think it stands a test of time, The Usual Suspects. Uh, good, good shot. I'll tell you, I was just thinking, I, I remember that I really, really enjoyed it. 
but I really have trouble recalling it. And unfortunately, and this happens to me with a lot of modern-day movies, I get it mixed up with Seven. Now, Seven had Brad Pitt, didn't it? Correct. Yeah. I don't know why I get it mixed up. I mean, they're, they're not – are they similar movies in any way? No, not really. Okay. Well, that could be a comment on where my head is at or was at in 1995. All right, TV. Now, um, uh, this is a bit of a struggle for me, I must admit. In the end, I've gone with a show which probably wasn't one of the bigger successes for this um, production house. And uh, what production house, you ask? Well, Working Dog, the uh, people that bought you The Late Show and have done a number of phenomenally successful movies and uh, TV shows subsequently. This one uh, came and went pretty quickly, but I didn't mind it. And I'm talking about Funky Squad, which was a pretty obvious piss take of Mod Squad and a um, collection of early 70s uh, American police dramas. And uh, I actually only went for seven episodes between April and June in 95, but... uh, it was, as they suggest, they were funky. They were uh, dressed in typical 70s attire and the characters. I had to remind myself of the characters, but there was sticks. And uh, actually, this was good. The the characters, even uh, the actors, in inverted commas, playing the characters, even had non plumes as well. So sticks was played by Joey Alvarez, who was really Santo Chilaro. Grant, uh, played by Blair Steele, otherwise known as Tim Ferguson. Uh, who popped in to lend his weight to this project. Poncho was Harvey Zvarilla Jr., Tommy Gleisner. Cassie Verity Svensson Hart was actually Jane Kennedy. And the chief, Baldwin Scott, was played by Barry Friedlander. And it was pretty typical police show fare. You know, they caught crims and, uh, in you know, had car chases and all that sort of stuff, but uh, never, ever letting that get in the way of their slavish devotion to the style of the early 70s, which meant lots of pink, purple, orange, lots of flares, lots of long hair and sideburns and mutton chops and moustaches. And uh, that really made the show. And it was uh, pretty lightweight, but uh, I remember I enjoyed it at least. And, in fact, I may even revisit it soon because I don't think I've seen it since it was on. So Funky Squad, another early project from uh, Working Dog and The Late Show group, and uh, they don't usually get it wrong. So worth having a look at if you haven't seen it. Okay. My TV show is one that debuted in Australia in 1995. And I'd mentioned it previously because I've done the Gary Shandling show, but Gary Shandling, the actor, hit the heights with the Larry Sanders show, which was a a satire comedy. Larry Sanders, late night TV host, full of the um, ego and paranoia and foibles one would associate with such a position, played by Gary Shandling. The other two main actors, Jeffrey Tambor, playing his offsider, playing his... Hey Now Man, Hank Kingsley, and his producer, brilliantly, uh, a character called Arthur, brilliantly played by Rip Torn. Uh, the, movie, uh, the TV series Strength lies in the list of actors and actresses who appeared on the program as guests of Larry Sanders on his program as themselves and really interacted brilliantly with Larry, and I'll give you just a run through quickly some of the people who appeared on the show. Jason Alexander, Tim Allen, Alec Baldwin, 
uh, Roseanne Barr, Warren Beatty, Drew Barrymore, the group Beck, you know, James Belushi. Um, let's have a look. Dr. Joyce Brothers was fantastic. Um, Jim Carrey was on the program, Chevy Chase, Elvis Costello, Billy Crystal. It's a great list. Danny DeVito, Peter Falk, Sally Field, Bridget Fonda, Al Franken, who's a great comedian, Jeff Goldblum. On and on it goes. Chris Isaac was on it. Jerry Seinfeld was on it. Um, Sugar Ray Leonard, David Letterman appeared on it. Barry Levinson, the great writer. Um, uh, A number of famous bands appeared on the program as well. Um, Adam Sandler was on the program, Richard Simmons, <laughs> hilarious episode, William Shatner, Howard Stern, Jerry Stiller, Ben Stiller, and a f- great episode with the Wu-Tang Clan when Hank Kingsley you know, tried to be super cool with the Wu-Tang Clan. He just found him to be the greatest you know, dickwad of all time. But a, re- a great program, and, and it it's hard to get hold of. It's not played, I think, on, in Australia on any of the programs in syndication, so you don't see it on Foxtel on any of their state channels or whatever. But if you can get hold of the Larry Sanders show, it's an absolute ripper. Yeah, I remember sort of seeing it once or twice, and I was a bit like that with something like Curb Your Enthusiasm. But, I mean, it's fair to say, isn't it, that it that was sort of a, a pioneer of that genre of comedy, the sort of... Uh, blurring of the lines between, you know, real life and and sitcom. Spot on. That's exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah. No, it's an amazing roll call of talent. No, I will check that out. So, uh, the Larry Sanders show, and uh, in in the uh, in true fashion of all good TV programming um, in this country, put on in a ridiculous time slot that moved around all the time, and no one was ever going to watch. Correct? Exactly right. Sort of a midnight right. showing. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, finish off with some footy moments from 1995. I think about 1995 in a footy sense, Fonny, and uh, I can't go past one thing, and the story of the year was Carlton's amazing season and amazing for several reasons. Number least, um, they only lost two games of the season. Uh, The way they lost those games was remarkable. They won, uh, I think, six games in a row and then were promptly absolutely smashed by your mob, St Kilda, who beat them by 72 points on a really wet day out at Waverley. And then they butted up. I think Sydney played them first, didn't they? No, no, St Kilda first. And then they went up to the SCG and got hammered by 56 points. Absolutely smashed in both games. And I can remember then people saying, oh, the bubble's burst, you know, what's gone wrong with the Blues? Well, the next week they came out and beat Hawthorne by 102 points, and that was the first of 16 wins in a row, the 16th of which, of course, was their just as emphatic demolition of Geelong in the 95 grand final. And uh, it was a remarkable season, mainly because... They'd been written off. They, you know, they'd lost the grand final in '93, '94. They played really well all year, finished on top, and then gone out in straight sets, uh, losing uh, what was it, the second semi to Geelong, and I've oh, been beaten by Melbourne first and then Geelong, um, and they were quite an old side. You know, they had six guys over the age of thirty. Um, 
the average, I, I looked it up, the average age of their grand final side was 26 years and 281 days. That is really old in footy terms for a premiership team. Um, and all the stars just played out of their skins. You know, Kernahan, Williams, Bradley, Madden, all those stars had fantastic seasons. And they had a couple of important um, cameos from guys who, who uh, like, for instance, Brad Pierce, who had a fantastic season, would never really recapture that form, but was really important to them. Matt Clappe, who'd come across from West Coast, he was a terrific player for them. Uh, they had a couple of youngsters in Scott Camperioli, who was outstanding for them in his first year. Adrian Whitehead, who um, actually I've been uh, conversing with Adrian Whitehead on Twitter lately, so good to see him still around the traps. And he had a really good season. Of course, his career was basically taken away with uh, disastrous foot injuries. But um, just a whole succession of players who played and, the and season. Brett, wasn't lives. Brett Ratton a star in 95? Yeah, well, that was probably his emergence, I, I guess. I mean, he'd been uh, pretty much a, a sort of lockdown defender but prior to that, but really sort of emerged into his own. They just played wonderful footy. And the only scare they had in the end on the way to the flag was that first final against Brisbane, where they really had to battle to win the game, but got over the line in the end. And then um, absolutely blew North Melbourne away in a preliminary final by 10 goals and then blew Geelong away in a grand final that was supposed to be close. They dominated the year and uh, very rightfully walked away with uh, what ended up being their most recent premiership. So that's my footy memory. That's a good one because mine's an absolute nightmare. Okay. Now, I've seen some terrible thrashings as a St Kilda supporter. You'd appreciate that, wouldn't you? I would, but I always say I've been present at a few of them. But I always say on on sort of adjusted on on adjustment, the worst performance ever by St Kilda happened in nineteen ninety five. It was round five at Princess Park, home of the Carlton Football Club and Hawthorne for a time there. But the home team that day was Essendon for some reason. Ah, uh, yes, I was there. I was at that. Now, it poured. I was in the outer that day. Do you remember how much it rained that day? I remember it was wet. St Kilda kicked the first goal. I thought, this is good. Uh, they come into that game, by the way, with no wins. So I wasn't all that optimistic. Uh, by quarter time, Essendon led 7-5 to 1-1. Half time, 14-8 to 3-1. 21-8, seven goals straight to five goals three. And... Already over 100 points in front, 24-10 to 5-8 the final score, winning by 116 points. Seasonally adjusted on a dry day at a ground not such as Princess Park, that's about a 210-point a victory, I reckon. It was an absolute <laughs> annihilation. Look, Essendon had a really good team in. I've got to say their side was very strong, and St Kilda's side was not great. But, you know, Essendon had... Eight different multiple goal kickers. Do you know who was their leading goal kicker that day with four? Uh, I, yeah, I think I do because I looked it up. Darren Buick. Correct. They had a number of players kick three goals. Heard, Long, McCurry. And Cockatoo Collins Cockatoo played Col well, Shay Cockatoo Collins kicked three goals. You know, they're, they're, it's a good team. Um, do you know who made his debut for Essendon that day? Ooh. Um, 95. He didn't feature, but no. he go on to feature. 
Gary, uh, Gary Moorcroft. Ah, of course. Yes. You know, Fiss and Kilda, it was a tale of woe, and I guess some of the players didn't really have great careers. Glenn Coglin, a ruckman who came from Collingwood where he never played a game, played. Josh Kitchen, a reject from Hawthorne. Glenn Nugent, a reject from Hawthorne. Uh, there was Damon Shaw, never really hit the heights. Wayne Thornborough, a South Australian disappointment. But it was a an absolute nightmare and an enormous win by Essendon. St Kilda would actually end the season on eight victories, so they sort of had a fair second half to the year, but it was an atrocious day and an atrocious result. Oh, well, character building, Fanny. That's character what they say. Building. Yep. Yeah, you, you're, and you're a very strong character. Thank you. Um, all right, there is vinyl video. We revisited the year of 1995. Uh, I reckon we need to finish off with a good rant, Fanny. What do you reckon? Well, I'm all up for a good rant, my friend. All right, let's do it right now. On Footyology, the rant off. All right, let's not dick around, Fawny. Let's get straight into these rants. I'm fired up. One of my favourite hobby horses. I'm ready to climb aboard and set sail into the blue yonder. Count me in. <laughs> Go blue yondering. One, two, three. I'm pissed off with the United States, Fawny. They've single-handedly managed to kill the concept of satire over there by going so far off the rails that the sort of absurdist comedy which helps sustain generations has been rendered completely obsolete. Don't believe me? Well, name me a single decent comedy show in the last 20 or 30 years which hasn't been made to look not only quaint in its humour but not even remotely far-fetched in its plot by the sort of stuff currently going on over there. Remember being there, that 1980 movie starring Peter Sellers as a simple-minded gardener who through a series of coincidences and misunderstandings moves to within touching distance of the US presidency? It came out around the same time a former Hollywood actor, Ronald Reagan, was elected president and people joked then about life imitating art. Well, what on earth would US politics be imitating now? Sure, Reagan may have had his foibles, but compared to the peanut currently occupying the White House, he was a beacon of intelligence, statesmanlike behaviour and at the very least relative sanity. And I'm absolutely sure he didn't go around advocating the injection of disinfectant or massive doses of sunlight to cure diseases with which a medical world was still grappling. Did you see that press conference last week? Trump delivered that batshit crazy spiel directly to the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Deborah Burks. The look on her face was priceless. All you needed was to add the Kerbier Enthusiasm theme music and Larry David had a whole new episode in the can. Every time you think old Don Don couldn't possibly surpass his previous personal best in the rank stupidity stakes, he goes flying past the old standard so far that his infamous grabbing by the pussy comment during the 2016 election campaign seems by his standards up there with Lincoln's Gettysburg Address as a piece of oratory and inspired philosophy. You know that old phrase, you couldn't write this stuff. Like, you seriously can't. Ask the creators of Veep who season by season had to keep dialling up the outrageousness simply so they weren't offering a watered-down version of what was actually going on in Washington. You've got to sympathise with Trey Parker and Matt Stone from South Park too, Finey. When Trump was running for office, they obviously thought that for a parody, using their most bent character, Mr Garrison, 
the teacher with the creepy hand puppet, Mr. Hat, and the leather and chain-clad teacher's assistant, Mr. Slave, would suffice. Well, I don't know about you parents of the US of A, but I'd feel a lot more confident having my kids led by a guy who gets his helper to anally insert the school gerbil in front of his class than I would the orange nutbag dictating the direction of an entire country. And way funnier than any satire is also watching a catalogue of conservative political commentators tying themselves in knots trying desperately to maintain their support of Trump, even here in Australia. Just the other night, that bastion of rational thought, Chris Kenny on Sky News, was saying Trump's disinfectant brainwave was, quote, certainly worth a look. Yeah, good one, Chris. About as worthy of a look as your TV show, which is about due to change frequencies to the comedy channel. Seriously, Finey, satire is dead. Trump and the US have killed it, which given the sort of death toll the US is racking up due to their president's ham-fisted response to COVID-19 and the sight of bands of camouflage-clad machine-gutting, toting protesters against social distancing currently roaming American cities might at least make a pleasant change from them killing each other. Wow, well, yeah... Certainly raised a few eyebrows, his disinfectant comment, and then his, his follow-up the next day, which was, uh, I, I was being sarcastic. Uh, I was testing the reporters here. No, you weren't. Yeah. You, you were just being <laughs> and yourself. Then he, and, then he, and then he said uh, to one of them the second day, uh, well, I was looking at you, and he said, I wasn't here. <laughs> <laughs> he's a peanut. And you know, now he's, he, you know now he's said that he's not doing his daily COVID updates anymore? Oh, the ratings have dropped, have they? No, he just he's been told, obviously, by advisors. Let's <laughs> cut the uh, possibilities for foot and mouth down to weekly rather than daily. Yeah. All right. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. Three, two, one, rant. Now, from the outset, let me make it very clear that there'll be no sentimentality for the coronavirus that has claimed so many lives around the globe and, of course, now on 3 million cases and still growing. We will look back at this time of the pandemic with great sadness and great regret at some of the missteps. What I'm talking about is the sentimentality that will be reserved certainly for us in Australia with our time spent at home. And there is the human condition that lets us look back with rose-coloured glasses. I've heard many a survivor of the Blitz in London, for example, remember fondly the gatherings, the camaraderie, even though above ground people were getting the life bombed out of them. And I too think that when time has done its job, we will look back at this period where we were forced to stay at home with our nearest and dearest with some fondness. Family dinners have been shared and it's hard to get the family around the table once a week, sometimes once a month, but here we had it every night of the week. We, in fact, uh, at Family Fine, re, re sort of um, lit the light on Saturday night movies and we all have been gathering around the old TV and watching Saturday night movies at 8.30. Remember that? Well, we've been doing it over the last few weeks. Don't tell me there's anybody out there, and of course we've all had to get in the car to do a bit of essential shopping or maybe get to work or something important, uh, nobody's going to not miss the lack of traffic when we're bumper to bumper again, we'll all be fondly remembering stay-at-home COVID-19 as the time that we actually were able to drive 50 metres in Melbourne without being stopped. 
cheap petrol may be a coincidence as a relationship between Saudi Arabia and the Russians are to blame for this one, but it's 93.9 cents, goodness gracious. No pokies. <laughs> I think a lot of people will remember that pretty fondly. Not working. <laughs> I know a few lazy people in my house who are enjoying, uh, let's just say, it, an abbreviated work week. And finally, the one that I've enjoyed the most, not being forced to socialise with friends of ours that, to be honest, it's more a chore than a pleasure to go out with. Oh, pardon me, I'm choking up. No, staying at home, I think I'll remember it fondly. Well, I've got to say, Fonny, you, you raised several points there at, uh, as you die in the background, yes. several points there with which I heartily agree. And um, I am a bit of a stay-at-home animal, and uh, these have been the perfect circumstances in which to do that. So there are moments of stir craziness, but uh, I think those of us who quite like our own company haven't fared that badly, and uh, you're certainly one of them, I would say. No yes. good rant, and you made some very good points. All right, I think we're uh, just about done here, Fanny, but uh, before we go, uh, just another plug for our wonderful sponsors, if you will. Still open, still serving the best burgers in Melbourne at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, Andrews Hamburgers. And if you need a rebuild or a refurb on your house, think West Point Properties, Nick Spartels, he's the man to call. Wonderful sponsors both, and uh, wonderful sponsors are all you out there, our faithful footyology listeners. We really appreciate your support. Um, keep spreading the gospel if you can, because uh, we're loving bringing the show to you, even in these difficult times. So stay safe, stay well, everyone. Wash your hands. Keep the social distancing up until we're told otherwise. Download the app too, by the way. I think you probably should. I'm about to do it myself. And uh, we'll check in with you once again this time next week. See you later.